We have an absolutely incredible class in store for you tonight. This is lesson three of Curious Tales of the Talmud, where we look at the most, well, curious tales of the Talmud and decipher them based on f Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism and hope to walk away with some powerful life lessons. I want to begin with a story. Here's the story. There was once a little girl who was sitting on her grandfather's lap. And she was listening to him tell her a story, grandfather to granddaughter. Hey, Mom. Welcome. Good to see you. So this little, so the granddaughter is sitting in her grandfather's lap, and she is stroking his cheek. She is stroking his cheek, feeling his, feeling his cheek, and at the same time, she's feeling her own cheek. Okay? And at some point, the granddaughter says to the grandfather, Grandpa, did God make you? And the grandfather says, yes, a long time ago. And then she says to him, Grandpa, did God make me? And the grandfather says, yes, just a, just a little while ago. She thinks, for a little, she thinks for a moment and then she says to her grandfather, God's getting better at it, isn't he? Jerry, you're muted. You got to unmute. It's never too late, Jerry. There you go. I didn't mute myself. I'm just. I'm sorry. It might have been me. There we go. We got it. All right. Thank you. All right. So sometimes, and I'm, I think we're all guilty of this, sometimes we look at the stories of the Torah and we feel the same way. We feel like maybe God's getting better at this than the way it was back in the day. I'll tell you what, it mean, what I mean by that. There's so many stories in Tanakh, in the Torah, in the, in the books of the prophets, and the writings of Judaism, so many stories of strange and bizarre behavior by people who were spiritual and close to God and should have known better that it simply baffles us. These stories of people, the greats of the greats, doing such very questionable actions, these are the stories that baffle us. We got jewels in the house. Now we're good. Um, good stuff. And I want to ask you to tell me, hey, Jules, welcome. Um, hey, drawer, welcome. And friend, welcome. It's good to have you guys. Hey. Um, so I want to ask you guys to tell me. Give me a story, a biblical story of a mistake or a sin or a downfall that you've always wondered about. And the question that you've wondered is about is, how could they have done it? How could they have done that? Give me a biblical story that has bothered you in that way. Jump. Jump in. Go, go, go. Which one? Pinchas. Pinchas. Okay, good. Are you talking about him, the spear, or the spearies? Both. <laughs> Both. Okay, good. All right. Um, what else? David. Golden calf. Golden calf. How could they have done the golden calf? Good. What else? King David and Bathsheba. King David and Bathsheba. What was he thinking? Good. What else? Give me more. Eve. Eve and the serpent. Eve and the serpent. Adam and Eve and the whole, the whole uh, shenanigans in the Garden of Eden. What else? Noah. Noah. I know a guy. Good. The generation of Noah, perhaps. What were they thinking? Noah was building an ark. At least he was saving himself. What else? Ray, jump in. Joseph's brothers and... Oh, 
Joseph's bros, right? They're, they're plotting to kill him. They sell him as a slave. Who does that? What else? Mom, I think you were jumping in. Yeah, but I lost you. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I was going to say the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Yes, yes. And, and also the Jews complaining so much. I can't take it. Good. So much kvetching, right? Yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh, one second. You know what's happening right now, Mom? We're complaining about the Jews complaining. I that know. is like a meta-Jewish complaining fest. I love it. I know, it was, but it's bothering me for so long. I know, no, it's a good question. It's, 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 one, it's one that I've, uh, that I've thought about. more grateful. Yeah, yeah, they're in the desert. They're protected by God. Good. So we have all these questions, and there are many, many more, of situations where we look back in history, and we say, look, these are people that should have known better. Adam and Eve, created by God in the Garden of Eden. What are you eating from the forbidden fruit? The Jews who witnessed the ten plagues, the exodus, the splitting of the sea, the revelation at Sinai. Are you kidding me, golden calf makers? Etc., etc. The question is, how could they have done it? It seems, when you study Tanakh, the Torah, Tanakh is an acronym. I've been using it tonight. Tanakh is an acronym, just so you know, for Torah. That's the T in Tanakh. Nevi'im and Ksuvim, Tanakh. So Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim. The Torah, with five books of Moses. The Nevi'im are the books of the prophets. And Ksuvim are the books of the writings, like um, the Megillot, like the Book of Esther, the Book of uh, the Song of Songs, and the Book of Ruth, Ruth etc. Like th those are the writings. Book of Psalms, Chronicles, etc. So here's the point. Let's cut to the chase. The point is there are stories, story, so many stories, story after story of corruption, spiritual corruption, idolatry, worship of idols, and, and other actions that seem completely puzzling. And it seems like no one could get their act together, which begs the question, what's up with them? And it's a question that I venture to say most of us, if not all of us, have had at one point or another. And it's a legitimate question. And maybe the little girl is right. Maybe God is getting better at this. Because we wouldn't do that. If God took us out of Egypt, if God gave us the Torah, would we be prancing, dancing the Hora? Havana, golden calf. Hava. Would we be doing that? I think not, perhaps. Right? So what is going on? What we're going to do today is look at these stories and others like this from a much deeper perspective to understand what, in fact, they were thinking. And more than give, giving a specific motivation in a specific circumstance, we'll be drawing some really big, overarching life lessons out of this narrative, out of this conversation. Lessons that pertain to success and failure judging others and the fine line between self-confidence and overconfidence. All of these are tremendously important and impactful lessons that can literally change our lives today. And they emerge from our discussion in this lesson. So I am so excited to cover this topic with you. Basically, what were they thinking, right? Curious Tales of the Talmud, what were they thinking? Let's jump in. So we begin with a very curious tale. But before we start the tale, I want to welcome Morris and Jules and Steve. It's great to see you guys. I think everybody else was welcome. All right, great to have you guys here. This story that we're about to share tonight 
this curious tale of the Talmud, does it involve any nautical myths, like in Lesson 1, nor do, does it involve anthropomorphic, human-like descriptions of God like we spoke about last week in Lesson 2, but rather it involves a very strange dream and a seemingly impossible encounter between two individuals that spans nearly 1,000 years. But first, I need to preface this with a Mishnah. So there's a Mishnah that we're going to pull up. I'm pulling this up on my end. I'm going to share with you in a moment. The Mishnah describes three kings that did very bad things. And the Mishnah describes them in, in less than glowing terms, as we'll see right now. All right, here we go. The screen is about to be shared. This comes from the, Mish from the Mishnah in Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 10, Mishnah number 2. Let's ask, let's ask, who do we have? Ray. If you are up to it, Ray, please unmute and jump right into text 1A. Yep, you got it. Um, three kings have no portion in the world to come. Cheroba, I'm not saying it right. Cheroba, um, Ahab, and Manasseh. Okay, here we go. Thank you. So I think in the English it's pronounced Jeroboam. Ahab and Manasseh. However, it's Yeruvam, Achav, and Manasseh in the Hebrew. I'm going to alternate back and forth, but I first, I'm going to keep this screen up so you can focus on this Mishnah, because what I want to do is I want to go through each of these one at a time. The first one is Jeroboam, a.k.a. Yeruvam. The next one is Ahab or Achav and Manasseh or Manasseh. These are the three kings that have no portion of the world to come. Clearly, they did something wrong. What was it? We start with Yeruvam or Jeroboam. So who was he? The first king mentioned here was an eighth, lived in the eighth century before the Common Era. So that means he lived about 2,700 years ago. He was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel. I believe we've recently talked about this, um, yeah, in our previous JLI class, which was This Can Happen. We talked about the Ten Lost Tribes. At a certain point, after King Solomon ruled the in the next generation, the kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, split into two halves. There was a northern kingdom. I'm going to stop sharing so I can see you all. A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom of ten tribes, southern kingdom of two tribes. The southern kingdom was comprised of Judah and Benjamin. It had the, the holy temple in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was comprised of the other ten tribes, did not have the holy temple. Why is that germane? Why is that interesting or relevant? I'm going to tell you right now. Jeroboam was the first Jewish king, the king of the, the a king of the kingdom of Israel. It was called the kingdom of Israel in the north, kingdom of Judah in the south. He was the first king of the kingdom of Israel. He broke away from the Davidic dynasty. And listen to this. This king, Jeroboam, put up idols and he built pagan temples, idolatrous temples in the northern kingdom of the Jewish people. And he put guards on the roads. Listen to this. He put guards and officers, soldiers on the highways to make sure that no one would travel from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom for the holy festivals, for the Jewish festivals. You know, it says in the Torah that there are three holy festivals that you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to the holy temple. What are they? 
They are Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Yeah, and Sukkot, Sukkot. So those are the three festivals, and it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to go and show up in the temple, and when they had a temple in Jerusalem. This guy, this first king, king of the kingdom of the north, put guards to make sure that no one would dare go from his kingdom to the south to the temple. All in all, he was a pretty bad guy. Hence, Sanhedrin, the Mishnah says, no share in the world to come. By the way, in general, everyone has a share in the world to come. The Mishnah says, except these three guys. So Jeroboam, here's, that's why. The next one was Ahab or Achav. Who was this guy? He was also a king of the northern kingdom 50 years after Jeroboam's death. So we just spoke about the first guy, Jeroboam. This guy ruled, Ahab ruled, Achav, 50 years after Jeroboam's death. He married a woman whose name is a bit infamous in Tanakh. Her name was Izebel. In English, we would call her Jezebel. Exactly, Jezebel. She was absolutely, I'm going to use a word here, she was addicted to idolatry. That was her jam. She was all about the idols. She loved the Baal. She loved the Asherah. She was all into idols. That was her dealio. Well, her husband kind of went along with it. And, in fact, she influenced her husband to force the people, the Jewish people of the kingdom of the north, to worship idols. Trust me. It makes no sense. I'm with you. I mean, that's what this class is about. What were they thinking, right? Right, that you're with me. And this is literally what we're doing tonight. So he said, you have to, you have, a Jewish king, I mean, look at Torah, right? Can't serve idols. No, you have to serve idols. Um, he persecuted and murdered many Jewish prophets who were speaking out against him. He hunted them down and murdered them, right? Famously, um, Elijah the prophet, Eliyoh Anavi, was one of those that he pursued. Um, on his wife's advice, the Tanakh tells us, the books of the prophets tell us, that he had a man killed because he wanted to steal his vineyard. He liked the guy's vineyard. And the problem was, it, was some, it belonged to someone. So his wife said, who cares? You're the king. He says, you're right, I'm the king. Kills him, takes the vineyard. Anyway, yeah, bad guy. Can we agree, bad guy? The mission says, no share in the world to come. Done. Who was the third king listed? Menashe. Or Manasseh. I think I'm just going to say Manasseh. It's like so easy to, to, to do it in the Hebrew. So who was he? Let's take a look back in the text. I'm going to share my screen. Let's look at his bio. All right, here we go. Um, let's do this. Let's ask Donna. Donna, yes, please read text 1B. From This is straight up from the Book of Kings. Take it away. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of God, following the abominable practices of the nations that God had driven out from before the Israelites. He rebuilt the altars that his father, Ezekiel, had destroyed. He erected altars to the Baal. He made a worship tree, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had made, and he worshipped and prostrated himself before all the heavenly hosts. He built pagan altars in the holy temple, but God had said, In Jerusalem, I will establish my name. He also erected altars for all the heavenly hosts in the two courtyards of the temple. Manasseh led the nation astray and caused them to do more evil than that committed by the nations 
that God had destroyed before the Israelites. God relayed a message through his servants, the, prof the prophets, because Manasseh committed these abominations, he has done more evil than all the Amorites who were before him, and he caused Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, the God of Israel says, Behold, I will bring such a calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of all who hear of it will tingle. This is straight up from the book of Kings. This is not a commentary. It's not a medrash. It's not a Talmud. It's not. It's a straight up scripture. The book of Kings, Kings 2, chapter 21, verses 1 through 12. That's what we just read. Thank you, Donna. This was the king, Manasseh. He was 12 years old. He ruled for 55 years. Where was he the king? Not in the north. He was the king of the southern kingdom with the temple. Are you with me in this? He reigned in Jerusalem. The other two were, ki were kings in the kingdom of the north. Right? Maybe you could say they had a chip on their shoulders because they were in the northern. But this guy was a king in the southern kingdom. He was in the, the, the kingdom of Judah. He was in Jerusalem. He had the holy temple. And what did he do? He actually, he actually created pagan altars in the holy temple. He built pagan altars, that's idolatrous altars, in the Beit HaMikdash in the Holy Temple. This is the first Holy Temple. He lived, by the way, in the 6th and 5th century before the Common Era. So he lived about 2,500 years ago. He, his father was Hezekiah, Chizkiyo, who had cleaned up Jerusalem, cleaned up the temple from idolatry, and he brought it back. I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something. And, 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 and sorry, and, and you should know that not that long after his death, the first temple was indeed destroyed. About 50 years after his death, the temple was destroyed. And look what God says. Behold, I will bring such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, right, that the ears of all who hear it will tingle, and that is because Manasseh committed these abominations. So it's pretty frightening stuff. Pretty frightening stuff that we have here. But let me tell you something that deepens the plot. Um... Manasseh's father, we said, was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, who was a very righteous king. In fact, it says in, 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 the, in the good books that he, he, he was almost going to be the Mashiach. He was, he was like on that level. He was tremendous. Hezekiah, Hezekiah did not want to get married and have children. Why not? Because he had a prophetic vision that his son would be evil. And by the way, who was his son? Manasseh, right? So he was kind of right. And then he got sick. The father did. And he was wondering, why did he get sick? The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah of like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah told him, the reason why you're sick is because... You didn't get married and have a child. He says, yeah, but I have a prophecy that my child's going to be evil if I have a child. So I'm avoiding it. So what, is, what does Isaiah say to him? Don't play God. You do your mitzvah, don't play God. So he says, okay. What happens? He married Isaiah's own daughter. Hezekiah the king married the prophet Isaiah's daughter. They had a son. His son was Manasseh. And the prophecy was right. And he was a bad guy. It's a crazy story. In fact, so bad was Manasseh that he killed his own grandfather, the prophet Isaiah. You heard me right. He, he was all about idolatry, and Isaiah was saying, don't serve idols. So he had his own grandfather 
put to death. Are you with me on this? Yeah? If you had to rank him, good guy, not such a good guy. Can we fairly say he lands on the not such a good guy category? Yes. So we have the original Mishnah in Sanhedrin, chapter 10, Mishnah 2 that says three kings, three Jewish kings have no share in the world to come. Jeroboam, well, he started this whole idolatry thing. Ahab, he hunted down the prophets and killed them. And Manasseh, who was also all about idolatry in the holy temple, killed his own grandfather, etc., etc. Which brings us, all of this was the background, to our curious tale. We still haven't told the unusual Talmudic story. That happens right now. All right, all of this is the preamble. Here we go for the main dish. This is going to be text number two. Um, and I'd like to ask Dr. Maxi, please read this text. Text number two from Tractate Sanhedrin. Please take it away. Rav Ashi once concluded his lecture just as he reached the Mishnah regarding the three kings. One second, let me just jump in for, hold on, let me just jump in for one second. What this means is he was teaching, right, and one day he finished right before he reached the Mishnah about the three kings that we have, we studied tonight. In other words, he got right up to that Mishnah that we have already studied in text 1a, and, and that was going to be the next day's lesson. Please pick it up. Tomorrow, he told his students, we will commence the lecture with the discussion about our colleagues. That night, Menasha appeared to Ravashi in his dream. You referred to us as your colleagues and the colleagues of your father? Answer them this halakhic question. From where are you supposed to break the loaf of bread over which you recite the Hamotzi blessing? I do not know, Ravashi responded. You have not learned this simple law, Menasha chided him. Yet you have the nerve to call us your colleagues? Teach me this halakha, Ravashi begged, and tomorrow I will teach it in the academy in your name. From the part of the loaf that was fully baked before the rest, Menasha responded. If you are so wise, Ravashi wondered, why did you worship idols? Were you there with me, Menasha answered? Were you there with me, Menasha answered, you would have lifted the hem of your cloak and run after me to worship it. The next day, Ravashi said to his students, today we will commence the lecture with a discussion about the great ones. Okay, so this is a, this is a crazy story. Talk about wild Talmudic tales. Let me break this down because there is so much to unpack. And I, I need to tell you straight up, I want to know your questions. But I'm telling you, I have seven questions. Yeah, you heard me right. I have seven questions. I think they're really good questions on this one story. But let's. But first, let's just break this down so we understand what's going on before we ask the questions. So again, Ravashi is the teacher. I'm going to tell you about him soon. He was a really high-level Talmud scholar. He was one of the editors of the Talmud. I'll talk about this soon. He was high-level. He tells his students, tomorrow we're going to learn about the three kings, but he calls them our colleagues. Well, apparently Manasseh, one of the three kings, gets offended, and he appears to Ravashi in a dream. Now remember, um, well, I didn't tell you this. Ravashi lived about the 5th century of the Common Era. So he lived about um, 14, 1,500 years ago. And Manasseh lived about 24, 2,500 years ago. So we're about a span of 1,000 years. 
between the two. So Ravashi says to his students, tomorrow we're going to learn about our colleagues. And Manasseh is so offended that he appears to Ravashi, the rabbi, in a dream a thousand years after his death. He appears to the rabbi in his dream to call him out. You call us your colleagues, right? What kind of a chutzpah? You call us colleagues? And then he challenges him to a halachic, I don't know, a halachic um, match or whatever it is. He's like, yeah, if you, if, if, if you think you're so smart, Ravashi, which part of the bread do you break first to recite the blessing of Hamotzi? The rabbi says, I don't know. He says, you don't even know this law and you call us your colleagues. Anyway, he says, teach me this law. So he says, yeah, from where the loaf is fully baked, if you're so wise, why did you worship idols? Manasseh answers, if you were with me, you would have also done it. And then Ravashi basically accepts his rebuke from Manasseh in the dream, and he says, the next day, we're going to learn about the great ones. He switches it from colleagues to great ones, acknowledging the greatness of these kings, even though, the mission says, they have no share in the world to come, and they seemingly did some terrible things, but he calls them great ones. So there's a lot of questions on this story. I want, I want to know your questions, so jump in. I'm going to stop sharing. Tell me your questions. Go. I have seven, so feel free to add. Why does it matter what part of the bread you make a mozi over? Great. I love that. That's a good question. I have that question too. What does that even mean? What part of the bread do you break first for the hamotzi? What does that even mean? And for that matter, what's the answer? From the part that finishes baking first? How do you even know that? Like, what does that even mean? You have like th digital thermosensors in the oven while it's baking? What, is that, like, what does that even mean? What else? Good, good questions. What else? More questions. I'm crowdsourcing the questions. Why does he think, why does Menashe think that it's so important that uh, Tzaddik is going to run after idol worship? Yeah, good. Yeah, how does he know? He says, Ravash, if you were there, you were, who says? How do you know? Right? Nice um, projection there, King Menashe, but like, <laughs> who says? Good. Excellent. What else? Why would Ravashi even say, you're my colleagues? They're not colleagues. Oh, good. Why does he even call them colleagues? Does he call them great ones? Yeah. yeah. How does he call them great ones? Good. Excellent. Excellent. Good questions. What else? Who's got a, who's got a question? Okay. Let me share with you my questions. And I think the questions that were asked overlap mine and I have some additional ones. So I want to go in, in my head a little bit chronological order. But before this, I want to share with you one biographical tidbit about Ravashi. You should know that Ravashi was one of the great Talmudic scholars. He headed the Talmudic Academy in Surah in Babylonia. He was the first and primary editor of the Talmud. So the fact that we have a Talmud in which the story is recorded, are you with me on the on the on the Irony here, I don't know if that's the right word. The Talmud tells this story about Ravashi. Ravashi is the one who compiled the Talmud, mind you. So this very Talmud that we're studying, compiled by Ravashi, yeah? So Ravashi is this giant of a scholar. And then you have the Manasseh, the King Manasseh, who we read about, who did such, I didn't say it, it's straight up Tanakh, it's in the Book of, uh, uh, Book of Kings, it talks about what he did, right? So... How does, it even, how does he even call him colleagues, right? He should have called them the evil ones, as Ahava said. The Rishayim, the wicked ones, right? So he calls them colleagues. Honestly, that's being nice. That's an upgrade 
from what you and I perhaps would have called him, right? A colleague? Are you kidding me? A colleague of Ravashi? King Manasseh? Are you kidding me? And still, he calls him out. So here are my questions. Question number one. Why did Manasseh assume that Rav Ashi did not know the law about the bread? Because imagine if he asked the question, Rav Ashi would have given him the answer. That would have been very awkward. Right? He comes to him a thousand years after his death in a dream to call him out and says, I challenge you to this halakhic information. Imagine if the rabbi knew it. That would have been like, all right, I'll be going now. So he knew that Ravashi did not know the answer to that question about where you break bread first. How, how was he so certain that he wouldn't know the answer? And I guess the second question is, well, why didn't Ravashi know the answer to that question? Number three, why does not knowing the answer to that seemingly random question about where you break bread um, have any bearing on the relationship between Manasseh and Ravashi? Why is this the cause for Manasseh um, chastising Ravashi for calling him a colleague. He says, how dare you call me colleague if you don't know the answer to this question about breaking the bread? Makesha, what's the connection between one thing and the other? Are you with me in these questions so far? Yes, do they make sense? Let's keep on going. Question number five. What is the actual meaning of the law itself? Uh, Manasseh's answer that you, you say the Hamotzi blessing, you break the bread and say the Hamotzi blessing from the part of the bread that, bo- that, that baked first. How do you even know where it baked first, like we mentioned before? How, what, what does that even mean? Okay? The crust. The crust? Yeah. The crust I'm, gets baked first. It's on the outside. It, you're right. No, you're 100% right. But You can't cut into the bread from the middle. you got to cut the bread from the outside. Right. I mean, so, but then it's like, but then everyone cuts it first on the outside. So then, what does it even mean? Look, it's, it seems like it's like, seems like a riddle almost, right? And why, the next question, question number five is, why is Rav Ashi surprised that he served idols just because he knows this law? He says to Manasseh, if you knew this law, if you're so knowledgeable, then how could you serve idols? What does one have to do with the other? There are many smart people who do terrible things. So he says, you knew the law about the bread and you still served idols. Like, why is that causing surprise with that? What's the connection? What does wisdom have to do with righteousness? Question number six, why does Manasseh assume that Ravashi would have also served idols had he been there? Is he also just projecting, as I said, or justifying his own evil action by saying, oh, yeah, you would have been there, you would have been just as bad as me. Is, is that like, is that fake or is that real? And how, if it's real, how does he know it? And the final question, the final question that I have is a question on the resolution to the story. Right? The resolution of the story is, let me find this for me, um, that Rav Ashi accepts the response of Manasseh and tells his students, today we're going to learn about the great ones. How did Manasseh convince Rav Ashi that he was actually great? What, what in the world is going on? And has that happened through the bread? What does it even mean? Just the whole story doesn't make sense from top to bottom. I asked you seven questions. There are honestly more questions. But yeah, Bev, go ahead. Um, I think maybe it has to do with history, that the bread that bakes first uh, the things that happen first, that that um, and then the great ones maybe not be. Uh, the great ones are a little bit. Manasseh, but it may be the great ones going back to our forefathers. That he has to know, like in in a sequence of time, and that maybe Rav Ashi was just being Mavasa, was being. Being just being nice and saying, you know, I'm not going to engage in it. Okay, I hear that. I hear that. Okay, good. All right, hold that thought. We're, I'm going to present tonight an insight that is just 
in my opinion, it is life-changing and mind-blowing. Not necessarily in that order, maybe it's first mind-blowing and then life-changing. Either way, I'm telling you, this is going to be relevant to everyone here. Everyone here. So to understand this, all of this, this very cryptic story, we need to look deeper, much deeper. And here's the big idea. We're going to see through our analysis that Manasseh's point, King Manasseh's point, is that you simply can't judge me without understanding what was going on at that time. You can't sit a thousand years later and say, well, those guys were terrible, those guys were evil, those guys were bad, those guys are colleagues in some sort of, you know, you know, dis, some sort of disrespectful way. You, it, Manasseh's point to Ravashi is, you cannot sit a thousand years later and judge me living a thousand years prior without knowing what was going on at that time. So let's understand what was going on at that time. What was, what was life in Jerusalem like during this, the first temple era, toward the end of the first temple era, what was it like? So here's a thing to, to keep in mind. Here's an idea to keep in mind. Thrice annually, Jewish people, as I said before, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Holy Temple, on the three pilgrimage holidays, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Here's a text from the Torah that speaks to this mitzvah. Take a look at text number three. All right, let's ask, let's see who do we have here. Steve, Steve Horowitz, please jump in for text number three. Actually from the Talmud, talks about the mitzvah of Aliyah Laregel. Just as one came to the Holy Temple to be seen by God, so too one came to see God. So the Talmud says there's a mitzvah to be seen by God. God wants you to show up, the three pilgrimage festivals. But the Talmud says just like one, it's based on a scriptural, based on the verse, just as one came to be seen by God, God says, I want to see you, so too one came to see God. And what that means is that in the Holy Temple, one would see God. In the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, when one would show up, one would have divine visions, divine awareness. There were ten daily miracles that happened in the Beit HaMikdash and the Holy Temple. Phenomena that would, could in no way be attributed to natural forces. So witnessing these miracles, witnessing the entire spectacle, the incredibly spiritual spectacle of the Temple experience, one could not help but see God. Moreover, and this is a major important point. During the temple era, the general spiritual sensitivity was so high that people were able to see God in nature as much as in the miraculous. So, just because nature happens with frequency every day, the sun rises and the sun sets every day, you know, the trees are growing, the grass is growing, whatever, every day nature does its thing that in no way makes it less of a miracle, less attributed to its divine source, and they saw that. So, in other words, the fact that water usually sits and gathers, right, versus the water splitting, right, the sea splitting. So you say, oh, the sea splitting, that's a miracle. But a sea not splitting, a sea just doing its thing and resting, that's not a miracle. So what is that? That's nature. Well, who's nature, right? Where does nature come from? You know what nature is? Nature is also a miracle, 
right? Nature is also God. So there's God who does nature and God who breaks nature, but they saw it. You and I can talk about it and philosophize it and we need faith to believe in it because nature seems to be nature, maybe not God. So we have to believe that no, nature is God, what I just explained. But when it came to the people of that time, the people of the temple era, the people who visited the temple and saw God in the miraculous, they also saw God in the natural as well. They saw not God not only in the miraculous, perpetual fire in the temple, but in the natural sunrise and sunset, in the normal ebb and flow of life. They saw God not only in the pomp and circumstance, but in the everyday and the mundane. And they not only saw God in general terms, they saw God in very specific terms. People living in temple times, had such a heightened spiritual awareness that they could not see. They not only saw how everything was guided by the hand of God, but they also saw every detail of everything that happened was part of a larger master plan. So it's one thing to re recognize that God's in control of the world, but that every detail, every nuance is guided by God that's something extraordinary. That's a, an extraordinary perception. The people, the Jewish people living in the times of the temple, that was their awareness. Now, with the destruction of the temple and the ensuing exile, the spiritual sensitivity was lost. We don't see God in the details. We don't see God's hand in our lives. We see God in the miracle, in the miraculous. If something big happens, we're like, wow, that was God. But in the normal, everyday stuff of life, we don't necessarily see God, nor do we see God in the details. We're lucky to see any, any image, any um, flash of God at all. So even when we understand and believe that all comes from God, and yes, this too is from the master plan, and we really internalize that, we simply don't have the same level of awareness, the vision, the seeing that the Jews in that time had. So, for example, in our lives, we sometimes wonder, you know, we're at a crossroads. What should I do with my life? Where should I go? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Right? All of these questions come to our minds, and we don't see. You know, imagine if we were able to clearly see where we're meant to go, what we're meant to do. That would be amazing. We don't see it because we don't see God in all the details. We don't see God in the ordinary. We don't see God guiding us in the every moment. We see God only in the extraordinary on occasion. In temple times, however, they had a much heightened sense of, of divine perception. They saw God. They didn't hear about God. They didn't learn about God. They saw God. They saw God. Everything was clear. They saw what they needed to do, how they needed to, be, to do it. So whereas we grope in darkness and guess and hope and pray and, you know, we, we, we hope that we get it right, they saw it. They had a vision. All of this helps us understand. So understanding their level of spirituality. They were the generation who saw God. Understanding this, this helps us understand our curious Talmudic tale and the exchange, the dialogue between Manasseh the king and Ravashi. So Manasseh asks about bread. He says, which part of the bread do you say the Hamotzi blessing on? Where do you break the bread? He's asking about bread and what is bread a euphemism for? Here's what bread is a euphemism for. Bread refers to the stuff, the everyday, the bread is a staple. It's referring to life itself, the staple of life. So Manasseh asked Rav Ashi, 
if he recites, number one, do you recite, a, he doesn't really ask this question, but it's implied, do you say a blessing over the bread? In other words, do you recognize that everything, even your bread, even the natural stuff, comes from Hashem, comes from the Creator? Right? Do you recognize God's hand in your life? Not in the miraculous, but in your everyday life. And Ravashi says, yes, of course. But, asks Manasseh, from where do you break the loaf? In other words, do you see clearly how every detail is part of the master plan? Do you recognize in life which path is the true path, the intended path for you to take? Do you have that vision with absolute clarity? Do you see where to break the bread? Not just do you see that bread comes from God and every detail comes from, and, and, and stuff and life comes from God. That's broad, that's general. Do you see every detail? Do you see God in the details of this, the mundane stuff of your life? Do you see exactly how God works and why God works that way and why this happened and where you're supposed to and what you're supposed to do because that happened? Do you see that level of specificity and vision of God? And the answer of Ravashi is no, I don't know where to break the bread. I don't know exactly where the blessing is recited. I don't actually see exactly where I'm always meant to be. I don't see God's hand and the meaning of God's hand in every detail of my life. I don't have that vision. And so Ravashi asked Manasseh, so if you're telling me you have that vision, so then where do you break the bread? Where do you say the blessing from? And the king answers, from the part that was fully baked first. In other words, when you're facing a question in life, where to go, where to turn, what to do, all you need to do is look at the part that was baked first. Look at to see what God has intended for you. Right? The part that baked first means the part that God has designated for you. Where, which path has God set you on? And Ravashi says, but I don't know which part baked first. And Manasseh says, but I did. How dare you call me your colleague? We had visions of God. We saw God. We had clarity about God. Clarity not only about God, but clarity in our lives vis-a-vis -vis God. And you don't. You, and that's how he knew that he couldn't answer the question on a deeper level. He says, you don't have that vision. You don't have that clarity. You, a thousand years later, no temple in the exile, you don't have that vision. So how dare you call me your colleague? You're not my colleague. Let me share with you. So in other words, I had that clarity of vision. I was able to see that, and you, Ravashi, cannot. Let me share with you the text that expresses this from Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen, the uh, Rabbi Tzadok of Lublin. Take a look at this one. I'm going to read the text for. This is the, listen to this commentary. This is the meaning of the question from where are you supposed to break the loaf? Manasseh was in, in effect asking, do you perceive in detail how God provides bread for all flesh? If yes, if you were able to see with detail, or in detail, how God provides for all flesh, you would certainly know which part of the loaf God has prepared for you to eat first, on which you should recite the Hamotzi blessing. If you saw God guiding every single moment, bringing everything into existence at every moment, you would know what God has designated to you to do, for you to do right now. You would know which part of the bread baked first, so to speak. You would know where you should be reciting the Hamotzi blessing. You would know which part of the bread to eat. You would know what action to take right now.
You would know this, but you don't. You know why? Because you don't see God. Because you don't perceive God in that level of detail. You don't see God on the level that I saw God. Listen to this. I'm gonna, let me recap this story in my own words. Ravashi tells his students, tomorrow we're going to learn the mission about, the, about, our, about our colleagues. That night, Manasseh the king comes to Ravashi to say, I need to set the record straight. A thousand years after I've passed away, you're sitting with folded arms and a tisk 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 judging me for what I've done. I'm here to tell you that you have no idea what you are talking about. You have zero clue what you are talking about. You want to talk about me? Here's the deal. We saw God. We had a holy temple, the first temple. We walked in there. We saw God, not only in the temple, out of the temple. We knew how everything, we saw how everything comes from God. We saw how God is dri driving every detail of existence. We saw what God wanted us to do and what God didn't want us to do. We saw that with clarity. We knew which part of the bread to break first. We knew which part to eat. We knew where to say the Hamotzi blessing. We knew what to do next, what God wanted from us. And you don't have that level of clarity. You do not have that vision. How dare you call me or us your colleagues? Point well taken, not if yes. Yes, point well taken, yes. Okay, what's the obvious next question? I'm going to start the question, help me answer. Ravashi would say back to Manasseh, if you saw God, if God was so real to you, if God was so true to you, if you saw God not only in the temple, but everywhere, if you had that level of intimacy with God, so then how, help me out. Why did you put in the idols? So why do you worship idols? How could you sin? How could you sin with idolatry? That's exactly what he asks. That's it. Good. Now we're getting the story. That's exactly what. Baal and the Asherah tree. Yeah, he didn't just. Baal and Asherah tree. Exactly. He didn't just say, oh, you know this law about bread. How could you have sinned? It's not about the bread. It's never about the dough. I mean, it's always about the dough, but it's not about the bread. He says, Manasseh was telling him, I saw God. You didn't. Stop judging. Right? That's it. Stop. So he says, but help me understand. If you're telling me that you saw God, you're telling me that you're a giant of spiritual perception, so now I'm even more baffled. Okay, I'm not going to call you a colleague anymore. I'll, I'll be respectful, but help me understand. If you had such awareness, so then what's the deal with the idolatry? Let me share my screen with you. Because I want to go back to the story. I want you to see it in the story. If you are so wise, Ravashi wondered, why did you worship idols? Wise doesn't mean that you, know, uh, you knew this halacha, you knew this law. Wise meaning if you had such perception of God, then why did you worship idols? Before we get to the answer, before we get to the answer, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. That's a good question. You tell me he was stama bum, right? Stama bum means just like, just a, a no good nick. Fine. So that's why he served idols. But you're telling me, you yourself, Manasseh, King Manasseh, you're telling me in a dream. 
about how heightened you were spiritually. Their perception, you saw God not in temple, not in the miraculous, but in the natural, in the ordinary, and not generally, but specifically, you knew exactly what God wanted from you. So how do you sin? How do you serve idols? Of all things, serving idols, it makes no sense. To which Manasseh replies, not so fast. You're judging again. Not so fast. If you would be there with me, if you had that level of perception, guess what, bro? You would be picking up the hem of your pants to run better and faster after idolatry. You would be like putting on sneakers to run faster to serve idols with me. You think I, I served idols, I'm the bad guy? Trust me, if you, if you were there with the heightened sense of spirituality, you would be with us serving idols. Not just despite the perception, but because of the perception. And that's the big idea of today's class. Because of the spiritual perception, you would have served idols. And you're probably thinking, that makes no sense. I haven't explained it yet, so buckle up. To understand the powerful drive that the generations who saw God had toward idolatry. How were they driven to They saw God and they served idols? To understand this, we need to preface another very curious tale of the Talmud. Okay, so we got one more story that's going to help answer this story. Is everybody with me so far? Yes? We're weaving a bit of a narrative. Yeah, got a hot cup. But, all right, hopefully, hopefully we're good. If you have any questions, by the way, jump in. It's fine. You know what? I feel like, let me take 30 seconds. We had the story about the three kings. The, the rabbi says, we're going to learn about our colleagues. The king says, how dare you call me colleagues? Here's a law that you don't know. He says, I'm sorry, you're right, etc. What's the deal with the, with the law? It's not just about the law. It's about perception. King Manasseh is saying, we don't judge. We have this level of perception. You don't. Um, and so he says, well, then for sure you shouldn't have served idols. He says, no, 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 trust me. If you were there, you would have served us. You would have served idols as much as we did, if not more. In other words, there's some correlation between um, perception of God and idolatry. So to understand this, we need to share another story. This Rabbi, is, yeah. Rabbi, the thing that troubles me greatly is that his father was Hezekiah, who was elevated to such a great level that we thought that he was going to be the Mashiach. 100%. 100%. So how did he become, how did he pervert this vision of yep. God yep. in that same era? How does he get there? Good, good, good. That's what we're going to be figuring out. We need to figure this out. How could he fall so low, but more importantly, based on today's conversation, how could having that perception, that elevated perception, lead to such opposite behavior of turning away from God? It makes no sense. You're telling me, you see God, so you turned away from God? How does that make sense? That's where we're stuck. So to understand this, I need to tell you one more story. Let me tell you the context of this story. This story takes place at the beginning of the era of the second holy temple. So, the first temple lasted for 410 years. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. 70-year exile. And then the second temple was built. It lasted for 420 years. Destroyed by the Romans. And that's where we've been for the last 2,000 years or so. Okay, so this is now... Second, the first story took place in the first temple era. Second story is taking place the beginning of the second temple era. So the Jews have come back from the first exile, from the exile from the first temple, and they're rebuilding the temple. Here's the problem. 
idolatry is still a temptation. The first temple was destroyed because of idolatry. The second temple is now being built, and people are still desiring to worship idols. So take a look at what happens. This is a really wild story. Really wild story. Um, this is going to be text number five. I'm going to read this. It's a bit of a tricky text. I'm going to read it and throw in some commentary. So in the book of Nehemiah, it says, They cried aloud to God. They, meaning the rabbis, the prophets, the sages, the good guys, cried out to God. So what was their cry? The Talmud asks. This is again from the Talmud. So here we go. Rav, others say Rabbi Yochanan said, this was their cry. Woe, woe. It is this temptation for idolatry that has caused the destruction of the Holy Temple, the first temple, the burning of the sanctuary, the first sanctuary, the killing of all the righteous, and the expulsion of Israel from her land. And now that we're back, and this temptation is still dancing among us. Again, this was the, the woe, the, 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 the bemoaning of this group that was building the second temple. The, the temptation for idolatry destroyed the first temple, and it's still dancing amongst us. You so they, they cry to God, You, God, have surely given it to us because of its benefit. We want neither it nor its benefit. Certainly you have a reason for why you're tempting us with this, that it's for our good, the temptation, overcoming it, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Keep it to yourself. Keep the temptation. Keep its benefit. We don't want any of this. It's not good. We don't want it. They fasted. The sages and prophets of the Second Temple era fasted for three days and three nights. Whereupon, the temptation for idolatry was surrendered to them, and poof, it disappeared. I'm going to continue. The sages says, Ah, oh, because this is a time of grace. In other words, it worked. Let us pray to also be rid of the temptation for sexual transgression. They prayed, and this temptation too was handed over to them. Ah, oh, two for two. Three days later, they searched the entire land of Israel for a fresh egg, but there were none. Because they got rid of sexual transgressions, uh, the temptation for intimacy, etc. And now there were no eggs. This is the Talmudic story. There were no eggs. So they prayed, and that temptation came back. But the temptation for idolatry remained slayed forever. Okay, you with me on this story? Yes? Let me see you all. Yes? So... The thorn in the side of the Jewish people was this temptation for idolatry. The rabbis and prophets prayed and fasted for three days and three nights. Poof, it was gone. They said, oh, we got another issue. The, 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 the lust, the physical lust, let's get rid of that. They got rid of it. No eggs. They're like, okay, we got to bring that one back. And eggs is a euphemism also for procreation. You take away, right, eggs, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be like the chicken and the egg type thing. Take, 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 do it with intermarriage? At that time? Uh, I think in general, I don't know specifically intermarriage, I think in general it was immorality and adultery and that sort of thing. That was one of the, th one of the three cardinal sins, right? We have adultery, idolatry, and, uh, and murder. So this was one of the big three. This was a big issue amongst the Jewish people. They prayed, and it got removed. But the problem is, if you remove the uh, carnal temptation... You know what? You might not have an next generation either because no, no one's uh, procreating. So they said, you know what? Okay, fine. We need that one. But idolatry, we still want to keep gone. Okay, that's the story. This is a very puzzling story. I know it's puzzling. It's a very interesting story. I guess it's a curious tale of the Talmud. Um, 
But what's, what I want to note, what I want to point out, is that this happened. So, sorry. So the, the end of the story is that they did eliminate the drive, the urge for idolatry. To just bring it into our conversation. When was the last time you, like, fiercely desired to worship an idol? Understand what I'm asking? When was the last time you're like, oh my, I must worship an idol. Oh, I need an idol to worship. Let me get an idol and then bow down a bunch of times to it. Has that happened recently? Uh, I don't think so, right? So that temptation of idolatry has, why don't we have it? By the way, by the way, I'm not going to ask other personal questions, but you, we have other urges and temptations, correct? Can we all agree and acknowledge that? Yes. Okay, done. Perfect. So we know what temptations look like. We also know that we don't have temptation for idolatry. We also know that back in the day, it was a big problem. This is when it ended, the, fir- the beginning of the Second Temple era. They prayed, they fasted, and God said, done. Poof, I'm removing that urge, that temptation. And so we don't have it. I need to note this. I need to point out that it was right at that time, right at that time, that prophecy ceased. I'm going to say that again. The last three of the Jewish prophets lived right at that time, after which prophecy on a communal scale, yeah, you have people, individuals from time to time that might have a vision or something, and it could be legit, but prophets like a thing, Jewish prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and Nehemiah and Daniel and all. Done. Right around that same time era. It's not coincidence. Right around the time that the urge for idolatry is removed, prophecy is also poof, is also zapped. Makesha, what's the connection? What's the significance? I want to share with you a very simple idea. You know it, and I know it. You've heard it a bunch of times, but it fits very critically right here. God created a world in which there needs to be a perfect balance of good and evil. Why? For there to be free choice. I'm going to say that again. God created the world in such a way that there needs to be a perfect balance between good and the opposite so as to provide free choice. In other words, if the good was overwhelming, if good was like all the rage and evil was like, oh, who wants that? Well, then we would always do good. There wouldn't be free choice. And good would be meaningless because it would be too easy to do good. Are you with me on that? If evil didn't present a challenge, then good would be, would be meaningless. Conversely, if evil is all the rage, right, and good is like, that's ridiculous, who wants to do good? Well, then it's too easy to sin, and then it's skewed that way. So there has to be a nice balance between the two. Listen to this. So the, the Jewish people, or the, the rabbis, they pray to God to remove the temptation for idolatry. So God says, done. Okay, but you want to keep prophecy? In other words, you want to keep this, 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 the, the godly part, the spirit, the good part of it, the good, the force of good. You want to keep prophecy, right? Divine communication, clarity of vision. You want to have that kept, but you want to get rid of idolatry? Well, then who's going to sin? Then it's going to be too easy to do good. Are you with me on that? The balance is going to be too shifted to the side of good. So therefore, God says, if you do away with idolatry, the urge for idolatry, you have to do away with the 
element of prophecy. Because if you keep prophecy and do away with idolatry, then it's too, too much good and not enough evil and it's not balanced and that's not good. How do we know that there needs to be balance? Take a look at text 6. This is from Kohelet. This is from King Solomon. He writes, God made one corresponding to the other so that man will find nothing to complain about him. In other words, there's always a, an equal balance between good and evil. One corresponds to the other. That's it. According to the commentaries, the one corresponding to the other is a reference to good and evil. There's always a perpetual balance between the two. Free, for free choice to be truly free, there has to be an equal choice. If it's obvious that one should choose one and not the other, then it's not called free choice. It's too easy. So, God says, you want me to take away idolatry? I hear you. It's getting you in trouble. You're like, God, please don't test me with this anymore. It's too hard. We're failing left and right. It got our first temple destroyed. Take it away. God says, okay. But if I take away that powerful temptation for evil, I have to take away a powerful force for good also. Are you with me on this? If I take away the evil, I got to take away a force of evil. I have to take away a force for goodness. I have to take away prophecy. Which is why that at, that temp at that time of the Second Temple era, idolatry poofs out of existence as does prophecy. And this is the way it was. This is the way it is to keep that balance. It has to be perfectly balanced. This explains why Manasseh and his cohort and his folks and his ilk could be so spiritually attuned and yet succumb to such spiritual depravity, idolatry, because with every spiritual gift comes an equally large spiritual challenge. I'll say that again. Given what we know about the nature and the necessity of balance between good and evil in God's world, we understand how if God gave the Jews of the, we're back, now back to the first temple era. If God gave those Jews such a powerful vision, if God gave King Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, such tremendous spiritual gifts, he also gave him tremendous spiritual challenges. And it's no surprise then that sometimes you succumb to a challenge when you're faced with a severe challenge. So Ravashi, essentially, Manasseh tells Ravashi, you're sitting at a time when there's no spiritual challenge. You're sitting without, uh, you're sit there's, no there's no urge for idolatry, right? And you don't see God either. So you have a very neutral challenge. You have like low stakes challenge. Your, your challenge is, you know, how early do I go to shul? Or, you know, how much Torah do I study? That's like, that's one level of challenge. But we, the stakes were much higher when we were around a thousand years ago. There was a temple, a temple of spirituality, of godliness. We saw God everywhere. And at the same time, we were tempted severely with idolatry. So in other words, it's, it's, it's commensurate. The, 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 the spiritual elevation comes with an elevation of temptation to a level unimaginable by Ravashi. Ravashi cannot imagine the level of temptation known to Manasseh because he wasn't on the spiritual level. The higher the spiritual level, the higher the temptation for the opposite. Does that make sense? The great, yes, I'm getting like a very small percentage of nods. The higher your spiritual awareness, the higher your temptation for, for negativity. 
So Manasseh says, if you would have been with us, you would have also lifted your hem and run after us. You would have put on your sneakers and run after us to serve the idols because you don't know what it was like. We had the gifts, but we also had the tremendous challenge. Richard, jump in. Uh, I, I was just, you know, getting getting confused because then how 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 does one uh, elevate themselves to the level of a tzaddik in in battling uh, evil inclination, the the the, the spiritual versus uh, uh, the the negativity that 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 is is embodied within all of us, uh, and so if my, if spirituality rises. Then, then so do the challenges, then, then how do you ever get to the finish line? Excellent, excellent question. That's why, because of your question, that's why most of us are destined to be a Bainani, which means that we struggle. And as we grow spiritually, we have more challenges that come with it. It's like we're never really getting to the finish line in the sense that we're conquering it. We're just, you know, rising above one challenge, but then we have another challenge and another challenge and another challenge. So where there's, life is a constant series of, of tests. Now, you mentioned a tzaddik. A tzaddik is different. A tzaddik has been blessed by Hashem, but blessed by God with a unique soul, a unique purpose that doesn't fit into the entire paradigm of what we're talking about. A tzaddik is someone who only has the good side and not the negative side. And it's ultimately, it comes through work, but ultimately, as the author says in Tanya, it's a gift, a special soul from above that happens to a person when God chooses, after a person has made themselves prepared, etc. But it's a, it's a gift but it's very unusual. It's very unusual. It's very infrequent. That's why tzaddikim, it says God saw tzaddikim would be few, and he, he, he allocated them, you know, in each generation. He spread them out throughout the generations. But by and large, the vast majority, and I mean by 99.9999, et cetera, percent of us are struggling bainanim, trying to be a bainani, where, you know, when we pass a test and we think we're in the clear, we got walloped up, up, upside, you know, upside the head with another challenge. It's like, you know, it was really hard, and I, I was nice when I didn't have to be nice, and I did the right thing, and I didn't say anything not nice, and I did the good thing, and then the next thing you know, the person takes advantage of that, and now you're like, I can't believe it! I was nice, and, and, now, and now this happens? And you're like, now I'm really angry. All right, there you go. That's your next test, right? That's the way life works. The moment you pass a test, you have the next test. There's a beautiful movie, which you may have seen, all of you may have seen, called Ushpizen. It's a wonderful, yeah, I love Ushpizen. It's an, if you don't know it, it might be on Netflix or whatever. Ushpizen is a movie about an, uh, the holiday of Sukkot, and it's an Israeli film with subtitles. You can, you know, if you got Hebrew, great. If not, you can, you can read in the English and, and watch along. It's a lovely film. One of the key moments is when this guy, there's the, the main character, the hero of the story, he's just trying to do the right thing, but no matter how hard he tries, it just keeps on blowing up in his face. And at some point, he runs to the field and he's like, God, Hashem, what's going on? And he comes to the rabbi. And at some point, the rabbi tells him, I hope not giving too much away. He says, Rav Nachman of Breslev said, the great uh, Breslev Rebbe said that life is a series of tests. When you pass one, your reward is another test. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. The reward, you would think, the reward of a test, I did the right thing, Whew, I should have relief. Yeah, maybe for a minute. <laughs> and then you're going to get the next one. That's the stuff of life. So as we grow and we build our spiritual, our spiritual side, the good side, you better bet that the other side is upping its game. That's absolutely the way it works, right? As we go through life, it's, it's working that negative side. Oh, I mean, 
just saying, I think we can all say from experience, that's what goes on. So that's what we're saying here. Manasseh is in effect saying to Ravashi, listen, first of all about the bread. I, we saw God. And when Ravashi says, so if you saw God, then how could you do it? He's like, because we saw God. What do you think? That comes for free? You just get to see God and life is easy? No challenges? That Everything's balanced. If you see God, can you imagine the level of temptation for idolatry? that has to be to, to, to counterbalance it? Can you even fathom the level of Nisan, the level of test that there needs to be for somebody on that level that sees God? You can't even imagine how fierce, how burning that temptation was because you live post um, the, the, the rabbis who got rid of it. You live in a very um, uh, um, dulled, dimmed, What's the word? Anesthetized, whatever the right word is, however you pronounce that, right? You live in a deep. Anesthetized reality where you don't feel God, you don't feel idolatry, you don't feel garnish, you feel nothing, you feel uh, whatever. So, so, yeah, how could you have built the idols and, temp and, 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 and pagan altars in the temple? It's like if you would have been there, you would understand. Because we saw God, there had to be a fierce temptation. Are you with me in what we're saying so far? You see somebody great. I meant to do this at the end. I can't hold myself back. I need to jump in with a, with a lesson, with a takeaway. You see someone who you respect, who you believe is great, and they do something not cool, not kosher. And you say, you know what? They were a fraud the whole time. Maybe, maybe it's another perspective. We live in a cancel culture, right? Oh, cancel. Maybe they are great on one level, and, I, and because of that, they're faced with a challenge that you can't even relate to how deep that challenge is. Not just, one second, time out. I'm not justifying the negative behavior, but it's about contextualizing it for one purpose. Thou shalt not judge. That was the message to Ravashi, and that's the message. Again, I meant to do this at the end, takeaways, but I can't hold myself back. Thou shalt not judge. You're sitting a thousand years later calling us your colleagues. You have no idea what life was like. We saw God. We were rolling in miracles. We even knew where to cut the bread first. We saw God in all the details. And now, and now you're really wondering, so then how did you serve idols? Because when you're on that level, you have that level of temptation. Because when you're on that spiritual level, what, you think it's, what, God made it easy for everybody? God took away free choice? God says, here we go. This generation, you're only going to see God and any temptation for evil, you're not going to have. So everyone's going to be tzaddikim. Guess what? What's the purpose of life? Then what's, where's free choice? What's the, free choice involves equal choices. Equally balanced choices. A temptation this way, a drive that way. Equally balanced. If you only see God and have a low-level idolatry temptation, so then it's too easy. Too easy. It's not what God wants. So God amps it up on the negative side. And now Manasseh tells Ravashi, had you been there, trust me, you have no idea if you wouldn't have been right behind me, running to build those altars, running to serve that. You have, where you are, you cannot judge. That's point number one. I want to go much deeper. If you thought that was like, oh, wow, that feels good. That's like a good insight. Trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because what I want to share with you now is not only is it 
that when you have a heightened awareness of God, you also have a heightened level of, of, of temptation of idolatry. It goes much deeper. Light is not just, it's not just light versus shadow. They have to be equal. Light and shadow, the shadow is produced from the light itself. Shadow is not something divorced from light. Shadow is part of the light. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? When you have a shadow, it's produced by the light itself. Okay, by the light being blocked, but it's, it's part and parcel. It's two sides of the same coin almost. So here's what I want to say. It's not just that Manasseh and his ilk, they had a profound sense of God, but they also had a profound, tempt profound temptation. Their temptation was precisely because they saw God. Let me explain. Let me explain. They not only saw God, they enjoyed deeply spiritual connection. I'll say that again. They enjoyed deeply the experience of spiritual connection. In other words, in other words, they derived pleasure from spiritual connection to the point that they became addicted to it and were looking for it wherever they could find it. Are you with me on that? In other words, they were so obsessed with divine connection that they were looking for that high wherever they could find it, even through illicit means. Do you remember the other item that the rabbis wanted to get rid of? Yeah? I think that, yes? Yes? Physical, right? Sensual lust? Okay. I think this could be helpful in understanding what I'm saying. Right? So let's talk about healthy context or healthy outlets for that and unhealthy outlets. Again, without getting, there's no reason to, to, to be super specific, but just I'm going to speak in generalities and I'm sure we're all understanding this, right? So let's say a person's in a marriage or in a relationship, in a committed relationship, and um, yeah, and there's a healthy outlet for intimacy. Well, it could be that a person enjoys the experience so much that now they're looking for it in other places that are outside of that relationship. Are you with me? Right? Uh, has it ever happened that somebody not only experienced that in their marriage, but also outside their marriage? Has it ever happened? It's happened. Right? So what does it mean? Person enjoys the experience and is now looking for it wherever they can find it or in other places that are not in that core relationship. That's why the two items are correlated. Because honestly, that's what the drive for spirituality, for godliness was Back in the day, they had such a fierce, we, we can't relate to it, but their drive for God was so deep, they loved the spiritual intimacy. It felt pleasurable to them to the extent that they were looking for it wherever they could get it. So yeah, how could Manasseh, how could he build pagan altars? How could he serve other idols? You know why? Because it felt good. You're like, but why would that feel good? Because we can't relate to it, that's why. Because <laughs> they, they, the rabbis took away the pleasure from that. And it works both ways. They took away the pleasure from idolatry. They took away the pleasure from serving God. Right? Which is why we don't wake up and say, man, I crave a mitzvah today. We have other cravings. Right? right? We might crave a steak. 
right? A steak dinner. We have physical cravings. But when was the last time somebody woke up and said, oh, I crave, I need the pleasure of a mitzvah. Say a mitzvah is a good deed. I understand the value. I'll do it. But it comes from a more cerebral place. Or it comes from a more, you know, there's a need to do it. Or, you know, it's a Jewish thing, so I'll do it. But the pleasure, like the physical raw pleasure, uh, I don't think most of us are there. You know why? That's what the rabbis got rid of in the times of the Second Temple. In other words, there was a pleasure, a drive to idolatry. So they said, you know what? We're going to desensitize the entire spiritual experience. We're going to take away the pleasure from idolatry. That's also going to take away the pleasure from serving God. But at least now, the stakes are much lower than amped up. Kind of like we said before, but again, this is going deeper. Why is this deeper? Let me just kind of restate what I'm trying to say here. It's not just that they had a very deep yearning for God. So, because everything has to be balanced, so they also had a deep yearning for idolatry. No, 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 it's not random. It's exactly because of the first thing that there's a second thing. Because they had a deep desire for God, they had a deep desire for idols. Idols being the same high, but found in in, an illicit fashion. And the truth is, maybe it's more exciting even when it's illicit. Right? Maybe if maybe maybe it's more thri- maybe it seems more thrilling when it's not so you know not in the not in the right context. Maybe the forbidden fruit tastes a little bit sweeter. So again, you and I can't relate to this vis-a-vis divine worship and idolatry. You and I can relate to this in other ways, right? In other, as I'm trying to draw the correlation, as the Talmud actually draws the correlation between the two between the two things. So. I'm just pointing out literally what the Talmud is saying on a deeper level. But here's the point. The point is that because of their, because Manasseh is saying, because we were so obsessed with God, that's why we were obsessed with idols, with idolatry. Because it was the same high. We wanted that high. We yearned for that high. That was the high that we lusted for. And so the rabbi said, we got to dull everything. We got to take it away. Bottom line is, he says to Ravashi, he says to Ravashi, you still can't relate to me. Either way, you can't relate to me. I want to share my screen with you and jump in on this. I'm hoping this is coming across and making sense. I want to go through this text again. Take a look. Whoa, whoa. These are the rabbis who got rid of the temptation for idolatry. It is this temptation for idolatry that has caused the destruction of the temple, the burning of the sanctuary, the killing of all the righteous. This temptation is still dancing among us. You have surely given it to us because of its benefit. What does that mean? Its benefit. You gave us a, God, you gave us a pleasure in spirituality to serve you. But you know what? When you enjoy, when that is pleasurable, then it also, you might also want to look for it in other places. You with me on this? You have surely given it to us because of its benefit means that yes, there's a benefit for enjoying spirituality. The downside is, though, you're going to look for that high. You're going to look for that hit in, in, in the forbidden. So we want neither it nor its benefit. That is the conclusion. Take, the, take away the sensation. Take away the pleasure. And it's done. And it's done. The temptation for idolatry, but it's more than temptation. The pleasure in spirituality was surrendered. And so they said, oh, let's also get rid of the sensual 
um, thing, but that wasn't going to work because they needed it for procreation, so they had to they had to backtrack on that one. But again, it, the two things are connected because they're essentially the same thing: a physical pleasure, a spiritual pleasure. But either one is pleasure, and either one could be found in the right context or the wrong context. I'll say it again: pleasure is pleasure. We know physical pleasure; they knew spiritual pleasure. But what's common to both forms, either physical or spiritual pleasure, is there's two ways you could have it: in the right context in the correct context, in the kosher context, and in the unkosher context, right? Outside the relationship. So, as it is in physical relationships, again, I don't need to elaborate, it is with God. So then they had pleasure in spirituality. And so there were some that wanted to look for it elsewhere, and they found it elsewhere, and they got, and they got pleasure from that service. And so Manasseh turns to Ravashi and says, you want to judge me a thousand years later? You have no idea what it feels like. You have no idea what, the, what that pleasure feels like because you've been anesthetized, you've been dulled, you've been desensitized to the whole experience. So you're telling me, oh, you served idols. Bro, you would have also served idols. Not just because God makes everything balanced, but because the, 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 this, the pleasure in God also leads to a pleasure in other areas, other forms of worship. Not to justify it, Right? It's still outside the relationship, but understand that it comes in a context. It makes sense. Pleasure is pleasure. So now we have a bit of an insight into the story of Manasseh, the dialogue between him and Ravashi. And we also have an insight into a lot of the biblical stories that you and I conversed about before. We talked about at the beginning of the class how the greatest of the greats how, how, how far they fell and how it doesn't make sense. Adam and Eve, God created them with his own handiwork. How could they sin? Well, now we know. Now we know. If you're created with such gifts, guess what is equally balanced? Temptation. Doesn't come free. Free choice was not taken away. Everything is balanced. Zeh lu'umat zeh. One corresponding to the other from Kohala from Ecclesiastes. In the Hebrew, it's zeh lu'umat zeh. One and the other, they have to be equal. So Adam and Eve are the greatest people ever existing because they're created by God. Mazel tov. Guess what else is great? Their temptation. Can you imagine how tempting that serpent was? We're like, oh, just don't listen to the serpent. It's so easy. Can't relate. The higher they were, the greater the temptation. Let's move on. The Jewish people, after the Exodus, the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, Revelation at Sinai, you're you're making a golden calf? You're worshiping a golden calf? Are you crazy? You saw God. How you worship a golden calf? That's the point. They saw God. They liked it. They wanted more. Moses wasn't coming down the mountain. Let's make a God. Let's get this party started. Can't hold back anymore. It's been 40 days. No divine communication. God's with Moses. God and Moses are hanging out on the mountain. We have no time for this. We need another spiritual hit. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? Yes? Because they saw God, because they had a spiritual awareness, because they enjoyed it, they looked for it elsewhere. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying I'm contextualizing it. I'm explaining how it could happen. And it makes sense. Because when you enjoy it, when you're experienced with it, it's been 40 days. I'm going to get it however I can get it. If I can't get it with you, God, I'm making a golden calf. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. They made the golden calf. So we can sit here 
you know, 3,300 years later and shake our fingers, wag our fingers. Come on, Jews of the, of the Exodus era. What were you thinking? And we just remember Manasseh's words. You have no idea. You have no idea. The level of temptation, the pleasure in God that also leaked out in other places, you cannot relate. You cannot relate. This is the message that Manasseh Taravashi and in turn us, don't be so quick to judge. You simply don't know says Manasseh, what we were up against. And you don't know why we had those drives in the first place. And indeed, after listening to this, after internalizing Manasseh's message, the very next morning, Ravashi shows up in the, in the Beit Medrash and he says, today we're going to learn about the great ones. Not because they didn't sin. Zahava said, they were Rishayim, they were wicked in action and behavior. Yes, they made evil choices, but they were great ones. They had perceptions that we can never imagine. They had feelings that we can never, they had temptations that we could imagine. They were great. Yes, he fell far, but he was not a colleague. He was not someone operating on the same level. He was not in the same realm as Ravashi. He was on a different level, in a different era, on a much greater level. He fell, but he was, on, he was the great one, the great ones. The great one is Wayne Gretzky, of course, and that's not, that's not what we're talking about right now. A um, little hockey reference. Now, all of this, I want to talk. We have three minutes left. Let me give you very quickly some takeaway messages at messages as we conclude this lesson and, of course, wrap up our three-part series. Here are lessons that we can apply to our lives. I told you at the beginning of the class that this will be, I, you can probably tell I'm excited about this class. I, I, I mean, this, 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 I, these ideas are so, my, to me, mind-blowing and life-changing. So here are some, I think we did the mind-blowing part. Let me do some life-changing stuff. Number one, lesson number one, which we spoke about before, is let's not be so quick to judge others. We look at others, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, ah, you're terrible. Pirkei Avot, we learned this. Um, maybe I'll share this very quickly. Um, text 9, let me go, go forward to text 9a. Uh, it says in Avot, chapter 2, Mishnah 4, do not judge your fellow until you have stood in his place. Yeah, you cannot sit a thousand years later and start saying, oh, uh, uh, um, uh, Manasseh is a terrible guy. Look what he did. He's terrible. How could he have done it? The guy's off his rocker. You have no idea until you're in his place what he was going through, what he was faced with, why he did it. There's zero chance that you can relate until you're there. So stop judging. You know who has? You and I are not supposed to judge. Who's supposed to judge? If you're wearing a black robe and that's your job and you're a judge, then you judge. If not, Stop judging. It's unhealthy. It's unproductive. There's no reason. You sit there. We sit there and we judge. This guy's bad. That guy's bad. For what point? For what? How do you know? You're not there. What is the saying to kill a mockingbird? Right? Do not judge a person until you've put on their shoes and walked around them a bit or something like that. To kill a mockingbird? Yes. Yes. You with me on this? Who remembers to kill a mockingbird? Anyway, bottom line is this. Don't judge. Number two, if you want to judge, let's judge ourselves, right? We're in the mood of judging and pointing. Perfect. Let's point at ourselves. What am I doing with the gifts that I have? Am I maximizing my potential? Am I succumbing to my temptations? Before we start canceling everyone else, let's look inside and ask ourselves, am I doing what I need to be doing? Next, we play the what-if game. We say, well, you know, if only I had the, the, the gifts that the great ones had, I would be so much greater. Are you kidding me? If you had their gifts, you would also have their challenges. Stop. 
Are you with me, what I just said? This is a completely new idea that I haven't shared before. Right? Sometimes you say, you know, if I had that person's, you know, ability or smarts or righteousness or potential or, or, or you know, the upbringing, if I, if I had all those things, then I would be at tzaddik. I would be perfect. But I don't, so, you know, whatever. What can I do with what I got? That's not true. If we had someone else's gifts, if we look at some, if we put someone else on a pedestal and we see, oh, they had all these gifts, all these things, all these, um, you know, good things going for them. Guess what? All the good stuff is balanced with negative stuff. So it would still be equally balanced. So the fact that we're not achieving what we want, what we need to achieve in our current standing is not because we don't have those assets. Because we have those assets, we have greater liabilities. It's just because we're not maximizing our potential. So again, it's not about looking anywhere else, but looking inside. I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to move on. I think it does. Next, we're never too big to fail. It's a sobering thought, right? No matter how big we are, no matter how great we are, we can't trust ourselves because we shouldn't be so assured. We shouldn't be overconfident because if, even if we're great, there's always a great temptation around the corner. Oh, I passed all the tests. Look at me. I got 100. A little bit of humility. Recognize, always be on guard for the next challenge because it is coming it is coming i want to give you the prologue sorry the epilogue to this story here my friends is the epilogue the end of the story let me fast forward to text 14 from the book of chronicles yep when manasseh was distressed he entreated his god and greatly humbled himself before the god of his fathers he did shuva Manasseh prayed to God and God accepted his prayer and heard his supplication. God returned him to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I didn't tell this to you before, but Manasseh turned himself around at a certain point. Manasseh then removed the foreign gods and the statue from the house of God and the altars that he had built on the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. And he cast them outside the city. He built the altar of God and he sacrificed on it peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings and he instructed the Judeans to worship the God of Israel. My friends, I only told you half of the story before, but the second half is right here. Manasseh turned it around. He did teshuva. Maybe it was because he was distressed at some point. Maybe he was in a little bit of danger. Maybe he might have been captured by the enemies. It doesn't make a difference. At some point, Due to distress, whatever, he returns. He does truva, and God says, you know, i got to listen to his prayers, because if not, then, then, then everyone's going to say that, you know, God doesn't accept those who return. I, that's not the way I play. I accept all who return, and God brings them back. And so, my friends, I'll tell you even something more. The, the Talmud relates, the Talmud again, relates that the angels turned to God and said, you're listening to this guy. You're going to accept this guy's shuva? Are you kidding me? You know who this guy is? And God thunders back, if I don't accept his shuva, I'll be slamming the door on all those who wish to do shuva in the future. Because everyone say, well, I'm also too, too far gone. God says, I'm going to accept radical shuva acceptance. Radical acceptance. God saved Manasseh. And this final lesson is a powerful one. One more lesson from this epilogue. From this, yeah, from this epilogue. Never write off anyone. Never believe that they're too far gone. Never, never believe that it's too late, whether it's regarding someone else or even for ourselves. We always have the ability, and they, everyone has the ability, if we or they truly desire and put in the work to rehabilitate ourselves, to get back to a good place, even after we fall. In God's world, there's always hope, and there's always a second chance. 
My friends, a lot of food for thought as we conclude today's class and as we conclude this course, Curious Tales of the Talmud. Let's not judge each other. If we are in the mood of judging, let's look inward. Let's recognize that the greater the abilities, the greater the challenges. So let's deal with what we've got, with the, with the abilities that we have. Never, let's never be too overconfident and let's never reject. Let's never shut the door in someone's face and let's never believe about ourselves that it's too late because it's not. Even Manasseh came back and did shuva. So, yesh tikva. There's always hope. Friends, this journey has been amazing. I'm very grateful to have taken it with you. Um, we're going to formally conclude, and then I'll stay on to answer questions. But as we are a little bit past the time, let's formally conclude, and those that need to go can go. So as we formally conclude, let me say this. We've studied. We've scratched the tip of the iceberg. We did Talmudic study. We studied some laws of the Talmud, primarily the stories of the Talmud. And throughout these three classes, I've shared with you a deeper perspective drawn from classic Jewish, philosophical, Talmudic, Kabbalistic, Hasidic sources to share a deeper perspective on these stories. In lesson one, I told you what Mamani said, that when you encounter a story that's a little bit strange and can't be understood literally, it means to look a little bit deeper. There's an allegory here. We've done that over these three lessons. We've discovered lessons about waves and about giant fish and about deceased giants in the wilderness. We've learned about God's prayer and anthropomorphic terminology about God. And today we learned about bread and the freedom of choice and the balance that we all have. There's a lot of work to do, but God has given us the ability to do what we need to do. So let's make this, continue to make this world a better place and bring Mashiach and let us say, Amen. Um, a quick announcement before we jump into some Q&A. Thursday night, so in two nights from tonight, we are going to be beginning our brand new course on the resurrection of the dead. This is going to be incredible. We've never done this before. We've never had a course exclusively on the resurrection of the dead. How do I know this? Because I teach a bunch of these courses and I know we've never done this. So you are going to love this. In fact, I want to show you what this looks like. And so I am going to quickly share my screen and show you exactly the image for this course. Okay, this is it. Resurrection of the Dead, a new three-part series on radical eternal life drawn from classic and spiritual Jewish wisdom. We've talked about resurrection of the dead. We've scratched the surface on that before in prior courses. We've done courses on the afterlife. We've done courses on Mashiach, and it's come up in both of those. But we've only done a little bit. I mean, we're going to do a deep dive um, into the concept of the resurrection of the dead, different disputes amongst the sages. In the first class, we'll talk about Maimonides' position, Nachmanides' position, the position of the Arizal and Kabbalah on, on the resurrection of the dead and how exactly it works. We're going to get very deep into this topic. It's going to be amazing. You want, if you can, you want to be part of this. Thursday night, July 1st, 8 p.m., intownjewishacademy.org slash resurrection. Don't miss it. It's going to be phenomenal. Brand new series, new material that I've never taught this before. Join me. You will love it. This Thursday night, 
8 p.m. If you can't make all the classes, three classes, if you can't make them all, then you can, uh, you will record it for participants and send it to you, audio, video, et cetera, and the materials. Now, one more quick point. Um, we are in the time period on the Jewish calendar known as the three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. It's a time of sadness, a time of mourning for the temple, the temple's destruction. Both temples were destroyed in the 9th of Av, which is coming up in a few weeks. It's a time that we focus on what we need to do to improve ourselves, as well as the promise of Mashiach, the promise of the future, returning to our land, and the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm teaching it now, because it fits with this time period. IntownJewishAcademy.org slash resurrection. Don't miss it. We may not do it again. That was a resurrection joke, um, but be part of it. All right, let's now, we also have a special event coming up in July, July 13th, Secrets, Archaeological Secrets um, of Jerusalem. It's about the archaeological secrets that have been found under Jerusalem, under the Holy City, that point to the Jewish connection with the Holy Land going back thousands of years in a world in an era in which the Jewish connection to the land of Israel is constantly challenged and the Jewish right, the right of Israel to exist, is consistently challenged, this is perhaps one of the most important presentations that you can be part of. It's going to happen Tuesday, July 13th. I believe that's the date. Tuesday, July 13th with the Jewish Indiana Jones. Fully interactive. It's on Zoom, but he has pictures and images and slides, everything to immerse you in the archaeological finds. It will blow your mind and help solidify our connection with our, with our past, our heritage, and our, and our land, and our holy city, Jerusalem. Join us for that on the website again, intownjewishacademy.org. It should be right there on the homepage. Jump in for that presentation. Okay, I think that's all the announcements for right now. Donna, jump in. Yes. So, um, I was just wondering, you know, so the... Uh, the problem with the too much lust was tried to be addressed and put back because realize there has to be, you know, we, we already went through that. Yes. So I'm just wondering for the for the ecstasy that in those days people felt from spirituality. Right. I mean, it seems like maybe we needed to have a little bit put back like it was in the lust category because, as you said, people aren't waking up and saying, let's do a mitzvah. And it makes it so hard. You're, so, you're asking an excellent question. I thought of this question also. You're asking an excellent question. Donna's question is, let me explain your question. Donna's question is, well, one second. They wanted to get rid of lust, to get rid of, you know, negative manifestations of physical carnal lust, but they realized they can't because of the collateral damage, right? So be, be the taking away procreation. So then why they take away the, 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 the pleasure in spirituality, to prevent idolatry, it took away the pleasure of a mitzvah. Collateral damage on the good side. I, I don't have a good answer. Other than saying, I guess the rabbis determined that one was worse than the other. That the collateral damage of no procreation means that this is where it ends. There's no next generation. As opposed to the lack of pleasure in a mitzvah. All right, you'll still do a mitzvah. You'll do it with a little less pleasure. Ah, you'll, uh, you'll do it because of Jewish guilt. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is, we'll still get mitzvahs in. I, I don't know that it's a good answer. I had the same question. That's, um, that's, that's a good, it's a good question. But I, I'm, I'm with you on the question. That's the answer that came to mind. It could be that it's discussed somewhere in the commentaries based on everything that we learned. I, I would need to look that up. And that, uh, to me, I, I don't, I'm not even sure exactly where to look for that. But th those are some thoughts on it. 
Um, Jerry's asking a question. Oh, another question that I had. Jerry's asking the million do- another million-dollar question. If Menashe, Menasseh ca- became a Baal Shuvah, if he, if he came back to God, so then why does the mission say that he has no share in the world to come? Right? So what's up with that? How, why doesn't he have a share in the world to come? It sounds like he earned the back. Or if he didn't earn it back, then God did slam the door in the face of the Baal Shuva. And so then the penitents would say, what's the point if I don't have a share in the world to come? So just because, you know, like, what's up with that? That's a good, yeah, Jay. It's my understanding that the Nitosis of that person will go to Olam Haba, and the one that needs to be perfected come back in another soul to be. Right, so it could be, what Jay is saying, exactly, it could be that it means that he needs to go through another tikkun, another reincarnation, another sort of tikkun in order to get it where it needs to go. But at least he's given that chance. So the part of the sparks of the original incarnation are not going to end up in paradise, but ultimately, through some refinement, we can, we can schlep him back in, but it's going to be a bit of an involved process. That's one way to understand it. Because clearly, the Talmud tells us that he was taken back, by, he was re-embraced by God. So as we learn the Mishnah has no share in the world to come, we have to take that with a grain of salt. But it's a very good question. Mom, hold on, wait, wait, you're, yeah, good. Yeah, I have, I have a bunch of stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, one is, uh, just to, to uh, uh, say something about Jerry's comment, um, maybe it's because he didn't, he didn't, um, he let, he misled people. He himself did too, but, but he, he, the biggest sin is, is making other people sin. So he didn't, he didn't really, I mean, he did repent on a certain level, but he didn't destroy those idols. He took them outside the city. So there's okay. a little equivocation there on his part. Good, okay, good. Now, I like it. Okay, that, that might be. Now the second, I, I have my own question. Okay. Two questions. One is, was it, is the general world also on the same temptation balance as, we, as the Jewish people are? Yeah. Like with a, with a, with a non-Jews also? had a temptation to worship idols and also experience God firsthand and then it was taken away when the Nevi'im, when the prophets fasted? Um, wait, say that, say, say that, wait, say that last piece again, sorry, about the fasting? When the, when the prophets fasted to take away the temptation yeah. of idolatry, right? Yeah. That, that's what did it, right? Yes. Was that temptation also taken away for the general world? These are good questions that you're asking. My understanding is that it was on a broad scale, but I can't can't say for sure. Because that makes sense because of uh, all the the, um, the, the, the The pagan pagan worship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you do still have to some extent pagan worship, but... It's not. It's the not not the way it was. Yeah, I, I my understanding yeah. that it's on a broad, it's on a on a, on a global level, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. Okay. And then my third question is a little bit different. It's about the balance issue. So you always say, and I know we learn. It's not just your contention. Is that one extra mitzvah will tip the scales? Right. So if we tip the scales. 
and then it's not in the balance that God puts the world in. So how could that be permanent? How could that be resulting in getting Mashiach there? Right. So look, the, 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 what, what makes our actions significant is that there's a balance between a drive for good and a drive for the opposite. What we're talking about in the context of one more mitzvah to tip the scales is this kind of over, overall ledger of good things and ba- like mitzvot and, and the opposite and sins. So one more mitzvah can tip the scales and bring about a time when there won't be any negativity, when it'll, it'll eradicate the negativity, which is Mashiach, when there won't be a balance. And so what would be the point of life then? We'll have to figure it out. But it won't be that same like living in the balance. Um, so yeah, it'll be a bit different. But one thing that I wanted to mention regarding your point and Jerry's point about the Mishnah, I need to share with you, whoever's still here, I want to share with you the following. Okay, because this is what I found. And I think you'll find this interesting. This is the Mishnah. Can you guys see that, the Mishnah? Yes? Oh, yeah. Okay, take a look. Yeah. Here we go. You ready? The Mishnah says, three prominent kings mentioned in the Bible and four prominent commoners who are described in the Bible as men of great wisdom have no share in the world to come. The three kings are Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Ahab, who both were kings of Israel, and Manasseh, king of Judea. Rabbi Yehuda says, Manasseh, excuse me, has a share in the world to come. As it is stated concerning Manasseh, and he prayed to him, and God received. He prayed to God, and God received his entreaty, and he heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem unto his kingdom, indicating they repented wholeheartedly and effectively. The rabbi said to Rabbi Yehuda, he regretted his actions, and his repentance was affected to the extent that God restored him to his kingdom. But God did not restore him to his share in life in the world, to share in life in the world to come. So the mission itself addresses it, and there are the, the, there's a majority opinion, there's Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, but they are describing the tension that you that, that Jerry brought up, and my mother also followed up with. This tension is actually described in the Mishnah, and. The majority opinion is that he has no share in the world to come. The minority opinion, Rabbi Yehuda says he does have a share in the world to come. And because it says that God did accept him back, and the rabbi said, well, he accepted him back for the monarchy, but not for, you know, for the world to come. And then, there, again, there's, and then there are other ways to explain it, which we talked about earlier. But just wanted to show you how even in the Mishnah, there is a bit of this dialogue that's going on. All right, um, let's, here's what I want to do. I think it's good, it's a good time to close it out. Unless there's any final comments, I'm looking around. I think we might be good. All right, thank you again for joining. I hope to see you guys at the next course. Thank you all, and have a wonderful evening. Good night, and God bless everybody. Take care, guys. Great to see you guys. Take care. Bye, Jules.